The following message was recorded at an event hosted by Desiring God. More information about Desiring God events, conferences, and resources is available at www.desiringgod.org. R.C. Sproul is the founder of Ligonier Ministries and the senior minister of preaching and teaching at the St. Andrew's Chapel, the author of over 60 books and countless audio and video messages, editor of the Reformation Study Bible, teacher on Renewing Your Mind radio program. And he sums up the aim of the ministry that he leads this way. Our foremost desire is to awaken as many people as possible to the holiness of God by proclaiming and teaching and defending his holiness in all its fullness. Our vision is to propagate the Reformed faith to the church throughout the world. And the linking in that cluster of sentences of the holiness of God and the Reformed faith is, of course, not a coincidence. Because the essence of the Reformed faith is the centrality and the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God, and that's what the essence of God is, his holiness, his glory. What gives me a special joy in welcoming Dr. Sproul to this pulpit on the 20th anniversary is because that's what this conference has been about for 20 years, namely that God would be seen and savored in the true glory of his majestic holiness. I want to thank you personally for doing this. These have been challenging days for you in the ministry, and it has moved me deeply that you've been willing to come and lead us in this all-important topic. So please, would you welcome with me R.C. Sproul. I think the supreme irony is, John, that most of the people in America thought that the Super Bowl was last night. But if we are to desire God, it is imperative that we desire the God who is and not a God of our own imagination. And what I've so appreciated with John's ministry over these many decades is that he knows who God is and he doesn't seek to hide the true God from people for convenience sake, but has been relentless and courageous as we all must be to proclaim and set forth before the people of God the character of God in all of his glory. It's already been mentioned, but I'd like to read to you my favorite text that sets forth the holiness of God, Isaiah chapter 6, that gives to us the record of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. You know that to be a prophet in ancient Israel was a lonely task because at the forefront of that vocation was to be a prosecutor of God against people who have violated the terms of their covenant with God. So the life expectancy of a prophet in Israel was about the same as a first lieutenant in combat. It was not a pleasurable enterprise, and the land was filled with false prophets who made the task of the authentic prophet all the more difficult. And the thing that distinguished the false prophet from the true prophet was not simply that the true prophet was faithful to the word that God had given him, but the true prophet was called directly and immediately 
by God. That's why the prophets were so zealous to record the circumstances of their call, which Isaiah has done for us here in this chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll read from verse 1 and read through verse 11. And I would ask, if you would please, to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate. What you have just heard is the unvarnished word of God. This is not an insight delivered from an ancient Hebrew teacher. This is a word that comes from heaven. With all of its inspiration infallibility, and inerrancy, before which word we as mortals should tremble. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, O God, as we attend to this word that we have heard, We ask that through the power of the Spirit who inspired it in the first place, we may be, as it were, transported to that scene where you revealed your naked majesty before this man we call Isaiah. Help us to see what he saw and to understand what he understood on that occasion to the end that we may be changed in a like manner to the transformation that you visited upon him. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the year that King 
Uzziah died. I don't know what exact year that was. Sometime in the 8th century B.C., historians have noted a certain irony when they pinpoint the year of the king's demise as corresponding to the same year that a little village was founded across the Mediterranean, the village that would be named Roma, the city that centuries later would provoke an intersection between the force of the mightiest empire of antiquity with the man that was the chief subject of the future prophecy of Isaiah. The year Rome was born, Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet of God. We don't know, dear friends, whether this call took place before the death of Uzziah or after the death of Uzziah. All we know that it took place in the same year that Uzziah died. If you want a a summary of the life of this king Uzziah, I invite you to look in your Bibles to the second book of Chronicles, chapter 26, that most of you frequent with your daily devotions. If we're familiar at all with the book of the Kings and of the Chronicles, we know that they read somewhat like a rogues gallery, because the vast majority of monarchs in Judah and in Israel were men of unspeakable wickedness and infidelity. We are hard-pressed to find even a handful of godly kings during that period. But if we were to rate the great kings of that nation, surely David would be accorded first place. And in any important list of monarchs, we would include Josiah, and Hezekiah, but we should never exclude from that list this man whose name was Uzziah. Uzziah came to the throne when he was 16 years old, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. Many people were born, were married, had children, and died during the regency of Uzziah. And perhaps the only king in the history of the Jewish people that had greater accomplishments on the battlefield than Uzziah was David himself. Uzziah built the strength of the military to a level rivaling that of David. His agricultural projects and reforms brought unprecedented Uh, prosperity to the land. He involved himself in a great many public projects that were astonishing in the ancient world, including forms of irrigation and towers of strategic defense for cities. And the Bible says of this king for most of his reign that he did that which was right in the face of the Lord. Unfortunately, Toward the end of his reign, he became full of himself and ended his life like a Shakespearean tragic hero. He got so puffed up with his own authority that he arrogated to his own province the right to perform the tasks of the priesthood. And so he entered with his censor into the temple, and moved to offer incense there, which absolutely shocked the priests, horrified them, in fact, and they moved as one man to stop the king from this act of sacrilege, and they played with him, saying, King, you are not permitted to minister here in the sanctuary. God has set us apart for that task. And when they protested this intrusion into their domain, 
Uzziah became furious and demanded that they give way that he could perform what he wanted to do. And at that, at that instant, God struck him with leprosy and forbade him any further entrance into the temple. He could no longer be the king. He could no longer worship in the presence of his people. And he was consigned, really, to solitary confinement in his dying days. And so this man's 52-year reign ended in shame and in disgrace. However, when he died, it was truly the end of an era. And when a monarch of this duration passes from the scene, there's a sense of unsettled spirits among the people. They don't know what the future will bring. And I don't know if that was the psychology that provoked Isaiah to enter into the temple. And we don't even know if he was in the earthly temple or if the vision that he records here was a vision into the heavenly temple. But in any case, for all intents and purposes, the throne of Israel was vacant. And we read that the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I didn't see Uzziah. I didn't see his successor. I saw the Lord. And if you'll notice in your Bibles here in verse 1 when he said, I saw the Lord, the word Lord is printed here, capital L, little o, little r, little d. If you go down to verse 3 where we have the song of the, the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You'll see the word Lord there printed in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Well, maybe speaking to clergy and Christian leaders, I'm carrying coals to Newcastle to take a moment to explain that difference in printing. It's not because the publisher uh, lost his mind for a moment here and forgot what he was printing, but the English translator is calling attention to us that even though they're using the same word, Lord, in the text, there are two different Hebrew words that stand behind that translation. And as a general rule, when you see the word Lord in the, in the Scriptures spelled out, capital L, little o, little r, little d, that the translator is indicating that the Hebrew behind it is some form of the word Adon, Adonai, which, by the way, I believe was the most exalted title given to God in the Old Testament. Just a little excursus on that. The word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, indicates that in the text behind it is the memorial name of God, which God revealed to Moses in the Midianite wilderness, the sacred name of God, the ineffable name of God, Yahweh. Now, here's the difference. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, is the name of God. Adon, Adonai, is the supreme title for God. Now, God has many titles in the Old Testament. But the title that I say that was most exalted is the title Adonai, which means the one who is absolutely sovereign. You know, when I wrote the book, The Holiness of God, many, many years ago, I followed it shortly thereafter with the book Chosen by God. And I had many people since say to me, oh, I loved reading The Holiness of God, but I sure didn't like Chosen by God. And I said, then you didn't understand one of those two. Because the God who is holy is the God who is sovereign. He is Adonai, 
the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. And you know that the normal translation in the New Testament of the Old Testament, Adonai, is the Greek word kurios, the title Lord. And you know that title can be used in different ways, simply as a polite form of address like sir or mister, the secondary sense to refer to one who owned slaves. Curios uh, was one who had douloi or slaves that he had purchased. But the highest or imperial use of the term curios in the New Testament is as an appellation that transfers the Old Testament Adonai to the New Testament Lord. And what is astonishing is that that title, which for the most part is reserved for God in the Old Testament Scriptures, is now given to the Son of God. And when Paul writes to the Philippians and gives the canonic hymn where he says, "...have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus," who being in the form of God did not take his equality with God, something to be jealously guarded or tenaciously held on to, but he emptied himself, not of his divine attributes, but he emptied himself of his prerogatives and became a servant, took upon himself the form of man, became a servant, became obedient even unto death. And you know what happens after that. The apostle says, Wherefore hath God highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name. Now, here's what I find with Christians. I'll say to the Christian, what is this name that is above every name? And you know what I hear people say? It's Jesus. I say, no. That's not what Paul's saying. It is the name that is above every name is the name Adonai, the name Curios, which is given to Jesus. And so Paul concludes this by saying, so at the name of Jesus, let every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Adonai. He is curious to the glory of God the Father. John tells us that really the content of this vision that Isaiah beheld was of the exalted Son of God on the throne prior to His incarnation. But in any case, He said, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high, lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. I love that phrase because, again, as you know, in the ancient world, the status of a ruler the loftiness of a king in many ways was measured by the stuff and substance of his garments. Were they purple? Were they white? Were they ermine? Were they mink or simply wool? How big was the train of his garment? I remember something that few of you who are here today Remember, one of the first international broadcasts on television that I was able to witness along with my wife before we were married was the coronation of Princess Elizabeth to the throne of England as Queen Elizabeth II of England, the first of Scotland, of course. I made that error in Scotland once and never get over that. <laughs> But one of the most amazing things of the pageantry that only the British can manifest was this glorious coronation robe that she wore. I don't know, as she made her way in Westminster Abbey to the front of the church, I don't know how many pages it required to hold up her garment as she approached the altar. It was regality with a vengeance. Closest thing I come to it intellectually is my wedding day. When I stood at the front of the church and waited for the strains of the organ to change from the processional of the bridesmaids to the entrance of the bride, and I looked as my 
wife came around the corner, and or my wife-to-be, and walked down the aisle, and I saw the grandeur of her gown. And we had to have that white stuff on the floor to keep it clean for her. It was magnificent. But here, what Isaiah sees, when he looks up there, he sees this monarch on this elevated throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his garment is so massive that it furls over the side of the throne into the front of the sanctuary and encompasses the entire interior of the sanctuary. There had never been a king like this before where the train of his robe would fill a temple. But that's what Isaiah saw as he gazed into heaven. And above him, he said, stood the seraphim. And what follows is an anatomical description of the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one of the most remarkable aspects of God's work of creation is the efficiency with which God makes his creatures. He makes them and shapes them suitable for their environment. When he makes the birds soar in the air, he gives to them wings, feathers, extremely light bone structures that will be able to go into the air because that is their natural habitat. In like manner, when he makes the fish of the sea, he equips them with gills and scales and tails so that they can live underwater. He makes them suitable for the environment in which they live. And likewise, when he makes the seraphim, he creates them with an anatomy that has a utility, a function for their natural habitat, for their environment, because the immediate environment of the seraphim is the presence of God. And to be in the presence of God, in the presence of His unveiled glory, every moment of the day requires a certain anatomical apparatus. They're given two wings to cover their eyes. Remember when Moses was on the mountain and he made the great request, the request that you sang about this evening. He said, Lord, let me see your face. I've seen some fantastic things. I can't believe what you did at the sea when we were between chariots and the waters. No way out. And how you opened up the sea. I I'll never forget the plagues that you visited on Egypt or the Passover night when the angel of death passed over all of us because we had the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. Incredible things that we've seen, oh God. But let me see the big one. Let me see your face. And you know what God said? He said, Moses. <laughs> I don't think you understand what you're asking for, Moses. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to carve out a hollow place in the rock. And I'll place you there in the cleft of the rock. And I will pass by, and I will let you have a momentary glance at literally what the Hebrew says, the hind quarters of Yahweh, but my face 
shall not be seen. To look upon my face is to die. The looking into the face of God is banned from our eyes from the first sin. And the reason why we cannot see God is not because there is an innate deficiency with our eyesight. The problem is not with the eye. It's with the soul. When we go to the Beatitudes, certain promises are given to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they'll be filled. Those who are merciful, they'll get mercy. Those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Well, who is given the promise of the visio Dei, of the vision of God, of being able to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Moses' heart was not yet pure. He wasn't allowed to see God. We have that eschatological promise that John tells us of, beloved, we don't know yet what we're going to be like. But we do know this, that when he comes, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, in say est, in his essence. Not by way of some refraction of glory, not by way of a simple burning bush theophany or pillar of cloud or pillar of fire, but we will see him as he is, which is called the beatific vision, the vision that will give to our souls its supreme blessedness. But in the meantime, he remains invisible hidden from our eyes in light, inaccessible. And the refulgence of His glory is so intense that even when the Shekinah is manifested on this planet to the eyes of people like Saul on the road to Damascus, He's blinded by it. And it is so glorious in its intensity that even the angels who are made to live in the immediate presence of God every day, have to shield their eyes from the brilliance of His glory. Two, He covers His feet. Why that? Well, the feet, biblically, are symbols of creatureliness. Again, back to Moses in the Midianite wilderness when he's taking care of the, the flocks and he notices to the side this bush that is burning but is not being consumed. And he steps aside to look at it and suddenly the voice comes out of the bush saying to him, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet for the ground on which you are standing it's holy ground. What, what, what made it holy? It wasn't Moses. It was the intersection, the visitation, when God came into his presence. This is holy ground, Moses. Take off your shoes. Because your feet are a symbol that you are of the dust, you're of the earth. Your dust is, your frame is of dust and your feet are of clay and in my presence. You cover your creatureliness. And even the angels, the seraphims in heaven, as exalted as they are, are still creatures. And so they cover their feet in the presence of God. The other two wings for flying. But the real import of this vision that Isaiah records is not found in the anatomy 
of the seraphim. But in their message, one called to another. I imagine that this was some kind of heavenly chorus, an antiphonal response. One called to the other one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the God of the heavenly armies. The whole earth is full of his glory, full of his kavod, his weightiness, his substance, his majesty. It provokes the angels to sing, holy, 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 what we call the trisagion, the three times holy. What's the significance of that to the Jew? Well, you know, the Jews had all kinds of literary devices, just like we do. If I want to express emphasis in something I write, I have various ways to do it. The cheapest way is to append several exclamation points. And if you ever write, let me say to you that exclamation points are to be used for exclamations. Not for an impoverished vocabulary. <laughs> In any case, we have other ways. We underline words or use bold type or italics or put quotes around terms. Well, the Jews did all of those things, but they also had another technique that they use to communicate stress or emphasis. And that was the simple device of repetition. You can think of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Galatians and he says, if anybody preaches any other gospel to you, than that which you have received, let him be on a tema, let him be anathema, let him be damned. And then the apostle says, in case you didn't get it the first time, let me say it to you again. I say, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than the one which you have received, even if it's an angel from heaven, take that angel from heaven from the seat of his celestial pants and kick him out and let him be anathema. So Paul repeats himself in order to indicate emphasis. Our Lord did it all the time. Now, Jesus never spoke a desultory comment in his lifetime, but even in his mission as a rabbi, there were times where he had to stress the importance of certain things that he was teaching his disciples, and so he used the device where instead of waiting to the end of his declaration for the people to say amen, he would preface his words by saying, Amen, Amen, I say unto you. Or, as some translators give it to us, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. He's just using the word amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. Now, when the Disciples heard that they knew it was like the captain of the ship coming over the intercom after the whistle. Now hear this. This is the captain speaking. What you're about to hear is sobering importance. And so Jesus would preface certain teachings by repeating the word amen, saying it twice. Let's take it to the second degree. Alec Matir, the Old Testament scholar from Great Britain, talks about a literary device of this matter in the 14th chapter of Genesis, where you have the record of the uh, kings in conflict there, where one translation reads that the kings of one group got bogged down in the tar pits. Another translation said they got bogged down in the bitumen pits. Another one said they were 
caught in the asphalt pits. And so another translation says they were caught in the great pits. And I said, what's with these translators? Is it an asphalt pit, a bitumen pit, a tar pit, or just simply a great pit? The material says what you have in the text is a virtual repetition of the same word. Well, the exact translation would be they got bogged down in the pit pit. Now, that wouldn't make any sense to us. But the Jew understood there were pits. And then there were pits. You get caught in a pit, chances are, with the help of your friends, you may be able to get out. But if you ever fall into a pit pit, you're in serious trouble because the pit pit was the pittiest of all pits. And so that's the form that we find throughout Scripture of that emphasis by way of repetition. But do you notice here, dear friends, that the seraphims don't say that God is holy. Nor are they content to declare that he is holy, holy. But the heavenly song that celebrates the character of God declares that he is holy, holy, holy. You see, taken now to the third degree, taken now to the superlative degree. Nowhere else in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. The Bible does not say that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or justice, 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 or even sovereign, 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 but that He is holy, Holy, holy. I've only was in this city once before, and it was about 25 years ago. I was on the board of prison fellowship, and I went to the maximum security prison here in this city with Chuck Colson. And also with us that day was Lem Barney who for nine years was all-pro defensive back for the Detroit Lions. Some of you remember that. And Lem got up and talked about Jesus to the most hardened types of human beings I've ever seen in my life. And he stopped in the middle and he said, Gentlemen, if this doesn't turn you on, You don't have any switches. And that's what I think of when I read this text. That even the dumb, innate, impersonal structures of wood and stone had the good sense to be moved in the presence of the holiness of God. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then briefly, the immediate response of Isaiah. I don't have time tonight to go into the fullness of his response. But the text says this, woe is me. This translation, for I am lost. Another translation, I am ruined. Another translation, I am undone. I like the word undone. Because here is a man who was regarded as the paragon of virtue in Jerusalem. He was thought to be the model of integrity. To have integrity, the dictionary tells us, is to be uncompromising with respect to principle. To somebody who is integrated, truth, has it together who is whole and complete. And yet the experience of Isaiah, when he catches one glimpse 
of the elevated holiness of God is the experience of disintegration. He comes apart at the seams. John Calvin, early on in the Institutes, talks about this sort of thing. When he said, as long as our gaze is fixed on this world, on the horizontal plane of this earth, we have no problem with our self-images. We flatter ourselves and address ourselves as something only less than demigods until if for one second we lift our gaze to heaven and contemplate what kind of being God is. In that second, that former security and smugness is annihilated. He said, this is the uniform testimony of holy men in the Old Testament who are reduced to trembling with but one glimpse of the character of God. Now, how does Isaiah express this? You know, when the prophets announced the word of God to the people, the principal device they used was what was called the oracle. There were two kinds of oracles used by prophets and agents of revelation. Those oracles were oracles of weal, or good news, prosperity, and oracles of woe, which were oracles of judgment. The oracle of weal, the good news, pronounced God's word of benediction. The psalmist used it at the very beginning of the psalm. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of God. And in that law does he meditate every night. God pronounces his benediction. He said he's blessed. Our Lord used the same vehicle of communication in the Beatitudes. When he pronounces the divine benediction upon certain people, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, as we've already looked at. But the opposite or the antithesis of the pronouncement of blessing is the pronouncement of curse. Let me take just for a second to remind you of, of the benediction of the Jews in the Old Testament. You all know it. You probably use it in your services frequently. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. What you have there are synonymous parallelisms in two parts. And the three stanzas mean exactly the same thing. May the Lord bless and keep. So to understand blessedness to the Jew, let's look at it. May the Lord bless you, which means to the Jew concretely to be blessed ultimately is to have the Lord make his face shine upon you. To have the Lord lift the light of his countenance upon you. That's what it means to be blessed supremely to the Jew. And out of that comes preservation, graciousness, being kept, being forgiven, and having the experience of shalom, peace. So if you don't want to know what the Bible means by curse, you look at the antithesis of that. You would turn it around and say something like this, May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord turn his back upon you and treat you only with judgment. May the Lord cause you to walk in darkness with nothing but trouble in your soul. See, that's the curse which was given to Jesus 
when he became the curse for us. You see, the announcement of that curse came through the oracle of judgment that was the oracle of woe. The oracle of woe. For three transgressions and four, Damascus. For three transgressions and four, Gaza, Edom, Moab. For three transgressions and four, Judah. For three transgressions and four, Israel. The prophet Amos was called to deliver the oracle of doom to the nations. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees who were supposed to be the righteous leaders of the day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the platter while the inside remains filthy. You're like whited sepulchers, beautiful in their ornamentation on the outside, but inside filled with dead men's bones. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You go over land and sea to make one convert, and once you've made him, you make him twice the child of hell than you are. The strongest way that Jesus ever brings the judgment of God to bear on people is through the use of the oracle of the woe. You see what happens here? When Isaiah discovers who God is, he pronounces the oracle of woe on himself. Woe is me. I'm ruined. Because for the first time in his life, Isaiah knew who God was. And the moment he found out who God was, it was the first time in his life that he knew who Isaiah was. And the first thing he was aware of was his mouth, anticipating the writings of James and of the tongue. I've got a dirty mouth. And it's just not my mouth that uses curses and lies and blasphemies. But it's epidemic, pandemic. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. If a man came to the church today crying like that, would say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You're going to have a bad self-image. Huh? God was not cruel. He didn't allow his servant to grovel in the dust there with this lamentation of destruction. God acted in mercy. Nods for the seraphim to go to the burning fire. Takes a coal that is white hot with the tongs. The coal is so hot that even the angels can't touch it. He has to use the tongs from off the altar. He comes over to Isaiah. He's groveling in the dust, confessing his sin, and puts that coal on his mouth, on his lips. One of the most sensitive areas of the human skin. That's why we kiss with our lips, because of the nerve endings, the feelings, the sensations that are there. And imagine having a hot coal like this. I mean, you can hear the, the flesh sizzle and burn. The muffled scream of Isaiah. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Never talk to Isaiah about cheap grace. There is something intensely painful about true repentance. And that pain is the precursor 
to the liberation and the peace of forgiveness. See, the point of this exercise was not for God to torment Isaiah, but to cleanse him. He cauterized the lips of his servant. He purified the lips of the man whose mouth was unclean. With these words, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I don't have time to go for the rest of it except to simply say this. Then he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I don't see how Isaiah could even speak other than through an almost incomprehensible mumble with swollen lips, burning mouth. But God says, Who shall I send? And what does Isaiah say? He doesn't say, Here I am, indicating his location. He says, here am I. Send me. Every one of us who has been ordained into the ministry of Christ has that vocation. I want you to think back during the next few days, couple of days while you're here, of your own ordination. When that vocation was established in your consecration. Every year in the United States of America, 16,000 clergy leave the ministry, some for moral reasons, but the vast majority out of sheer discouragement because they discovered there's no glamour in the ministry. They will never be fully appreciated. That's why you have to keep going back to who it is you serve. We're one beggar to another beggar where to find bread. We have filthy lips just like everybody else. The only thing that qualifies you to be a minister or qualifies me to be a minister is that we're forgiven people. And we know what that forgiveness means. And we know the majesty, the sweetness, and the grace of the God who has cleansed our lips. Let's pray. Father and our God, we cannot begin to comprehend the depths and the riches of your grace or the heights and loftiness of your majesty. Our eyes are so dim that we hardly ever get it. But Father, help us to remember who you are and who we are as we seek to be faithful to the heavenly vocation that you have given to us. Here we are. Send us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Desiring God, the ministry of John Piper, pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message for others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit Desiring God online at www.desiringgod.org, where you'll find hundreds of sermons, articles, radio broadcasts, and more 
all available at no charge. Our online bookstore carries all of Pastor John's books, audio, and video resources, and you can also stay up to date on what's new at Desiring God. Again, our website is www.desiringgod.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-346-4700. Our mailing address is Desiring God, 2601 East Franklin Avenue, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55406. Desiring God exists to help you make God your treasure because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.